This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Always Evolving is brought to you by Cast Centers, which is a company and organization very close to me. I founded Cast Centers over 17 years ago. We provide the best evidence-based practices for therapy, mental health, addiction, Anytime you're struggling or you have a loved one who is struggling, make sure you go to our website at www.castcenters.com, C-A-S-T, centers.com. Give us a call. We're here to help. We'll help you with a free assessment, and let's get your mental health on track. So today's podcast episode, I know I usually have pretty good audio, but I decided I really wanted to speak to Mark Leary about rejection today. And the audio on my end is not great. His audio is good. So I'm really sorry as you listen today, please know that my audio is not great. But what Mark has to say is really brilliant. So make sure you listen and hopefully you'll be less annoyed when you hear me. All right, enjoy. All right, well, uh, we're back at Always Evolving and the next guest that I have, I had a conversation with because I was interested in his research. He has been in, I suppose you would call it the social psychology realm for the past 40 plus years. He's been a professor at a bunch of different colleges. He's published 12 books and more than 200 scholarly chapters and articles on topics dealing with social motivation and emotion and the negative effects of excessive egotism and self-focus. Mark Leary, uh, thank you for joining me on Always Evolving. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, I, I initially spoke to you partially for my next book and selfishly because I just could not understand why I felt in pain when I was rejected by someone else and why knowing full well that the situation wasn't that important in my life. Why did I crave this kind of desire to belong? And we had a conversation and, and you have some thoughts. So why don't you share with me what, what your answer to that would be? Well, I, I thought the question you had was a question a lot of people have. It's very, very common because all of us are concerned about social acceptance. We're concerned about being members of groups, of being valued and liked by other people. But I think in our individualist culture, I think some of us feel mildly ashamed of that. We're supposed to be who we are and stand up for what we think and not worry about what other people think. That's the way my parents tried to raise me. Don't worry about what other people think. Just do what you do. But I knew that I was concerned with what other people thought. And it hurt my feelings when they didn't include me and I, I didn't want to be rejected. 
And and I found that really intriguing. And that's so that started this uh, 40-year research program on why are people so concerned with what other people think of them. And the simple answer is we're wired that way. We have to be concerned with what other people think. So if any of your listeners are saying to themselves, well, I don't care what other people think of me. I'm just going to be myself and I'm, they don't like me the hell with them. I want those listeners to think about what the world would be like if nobody cared at all. Nobody gave a damn about what other people thought of them. Think how awful that would be. Just how we'd smell. Why, why do we take showers in the morning? Why do we get dressed up? Why are we pleasant to other people? Why are we polite? Why do we follow rules? Because we want to be accepted. And that really stems from our evolutionary background. I mean, we couldn't have survived during six or seven million years of human evolution unless we were members of supportive groups. If you weren't accepted, if you got kicked out of the group out there on the African savanna five million years ago, you weren't going to survive, much less reproduce. So we are the descendants of people who were concerned with what other group members thought of them and who wanted to be accepted as members of groups. So it's not surprising that we all have this very strong motive to be accepted and to belong and that we feel really badly when we, when we aren't accepted. And that leads us to pursue acceptance. And I suppose, too, that's why there's this idea generationally around caring what your neighbors think of you. You know, I remember growing up and we lived on a cul-de-sac and all the neighbors were somewhat close and my parents would not show what we were like in the household they would show the best version of themselves and i suppose the desire to be accepted by the neighborhood right absolutely and, and we all do that we, we don't roll out our dirty linen usually just to the, for the public to see our friends and our co-workers and our neighbors no, no. What would they think of us if they knew everything about us? What would other people think? Uh, so yeah, it's a very natural concern. Now like, we can go overboard. I mean, and I think this is what our parents warned us about. Yes, you can be too concerned about what other people think. You can be concerned about it when it doesn't make any difference. And you described in your own situation, realizing this shouldn't matter. And I had one of those experiences even about five years ago. I was, I was in another country. I was at a conference in Switzerland and, and I cracked a joke with a female cashier behind the counter that I thought was just kind of funny and it was dumb. And she just got this expression on her face like I was just the scum of the earth. And maybe it was a cultural difference or something, but I kind of stumbled out of the grocery store and stood there on the street and I, I felt my feelings were hurt and I felt really badly. And suddenly this light bulb, bulb went off. Well, why, why the heck do I care about what this woman in another country thinks of me? But that shows how automatic it is. We can override it. We can tell ourselves it doesn't matter. But, but again, keep in mind that back in the day, most of the time, in those small groups in which human evolution occurred, it mattered what everybody thought. There were no strangers. These were people you grew up with. You couldn't afford to alienate anybody. It's only more recently are we exposed to all these millions of other people online, for example, who may hate our guts, and it hurts our feelings. So, so the internet has made this whole thing worse as well, but it's a very natural reaction. And I, I found it pretty interesting when I was looking at some of the research that the part of the brain where rejection hits and where we feel pain is similar to the part of the brain where we feel physical pain. Absolutely. We share that those two experiences, physical pain, stepping on a nail, and social pain of being rejected, share certain brain regions. And I don't think it's any accident that we call that emotional reaction hurt feelings. You hurt my feelings. Now, that's a weird phrase when you think about the emotion terms we have in language. We talk about anxiety and sadness and anger. Then we have this weird thing called hurt 
feelings. Yes, it really does hurt because it uses some of the same parts of the brain that are activated when we experience physical pain. I think it's also interesting, some of the phrases we use when people reject us are very dramatically hurtful. She stabbed me in the back. Mm. It was like a slap across the face. Uh, you know, she ground me down with her boot. You know, things that are, and we, we did this little informal study years ago of, I think it was 11 different languages around the world, including things as remote as an Eskimo language, and wanted to find out what is the word that those cultures use for what we call hurt feelings. And every culture, the word they use connoted some kind of physical slap, pain, or torture kind of thing. So yes, these things hurt, and they hurt for the same reason that physical pain hurts. Why does physical pain hurt? Because it leads us to be careful about stepping on that nail or slamming our hand in the door. The pain is an indication that you're harming yourself. Social pain, hurt feelings, is a sign that maybe something's happening in, happening in your social relationships in your groups that may be harmful to you socially. may not be. We Again, we all overreact at times. But again, it's an indication that, hey, pay attention to what's going on here. Figure this out. Maybe it's important, but maybe it's not. But the hurt feelings is warning us that maybe it is. And walk me through when, because I don't know much about research in this context, right? Like, how do you go about you know, you've written over 200 scholarly articles, and I suppose there has to be a lot of research when you write. How do you go about it? Well, the kind of work I always enjoy doing involved actual laboratory experiments where you bring participants in and you create artificial social situations. I mean, they're social in the fact that people are actually interacting with each, each other, but they're like little microcosms of things that happen in real life. And you study them under controlled circumstances so you can try to understand what pushes people's buttons the most. So for example, when I first started studying rejection, it happened to be the year that the first season of the TV show Survivor came out. And I was intrigued by, because of an interest in rejection, they're voting people off the island every week. And so some of our studies were essentially a little survivor thing where we bring in participants five at a time. These are research participants and they didn't know each other. And they would work together on some kind of a task. And then they would begin a process of voting each other out of the group. And we did it in a controlled way so we could control the kind of feedback they got about who got voted out to make sure that there weren't any biases within the group. But then we could study what were their emotional reactions, uh, their emotional reactions to being voted off out of this little group. Uh, what, how did it change their views of themselves? how to defect their motives, their views of the other group members. And what's really interesting is people had power, powerful reactions to this, even though it was a trivial group that was convened for research purposes, that was going to be disbanded within an hour. They weren't doing anything important. They didn't know who these people were, and they were never going to see them again. But still, people got their feelings hurt. Under some circumstances, they got angry at the rejection, which we often do. It affected their self-esteem. And so we could begin to understand at a very basic level and in an artificial context, how do various variables affect people's reactions to rejection? So that's the kind of research I always enjoy doing the most, and, where you, you could let it play out in, in sort of a real life scenario. And do some people, you know, I, I suppose like, and I've gone out with friends and 
some people have no issue going up to someone they're attracted to. And then you get another individual who's terrified to go up to that man or woman who they're attracted to and start a conversation. And really what they're terrified of is being rejected. Uh, yes. In that, you know, could be embarrassment, the pain and what have you. But why is it some people uh, seem to have a more uh, fearless mentality towards rejection than others? Have you found any, any reasons why? Well, certainly people differ on certain psychological variables that make them more concerned about rejection. Some people are more afraid of being evaluated negatively. Some people have greater social anxiety when they speak in front of groups, for example. Why do people get nervous in front of groups? I'm concerned that you're going to evaluate me negatively. I'm going to look stupid. And it's not that you're going to come up and reject me, but it's going to damage the way that you view me. My social value isn't going to be as high if I make a fool out of myself. You mentioned embarrassment. Embarrassment is a concern with conveying an image of yourself that might lead people to devalue you. I'm embarrassed by how I looked in your eyes. So yes, people differ on these, on these various characteristics, most of whom have at least a small genetic component, which is interesting. That is, what parts of your brain are activated in these social situations? And if, you're, if your brain is activated in places that make you more anxious or your hurt feelings greater or more angry, you're going to have stronger reactions to rejection than somebody who's just got a more mellow brain turned down in those emotional regions. And so, yes, yeah, some people are certainly more reactive to these things. Some people are much more sensitive to the possibility of rejection than other people are. You know, I had a situation recently, all right? And I met a guy, was into him, but it wasn't that I was expecting to be boyfriends or life partners. And this person didn't even live in the same country, right? And uh, the practicalities, it, it really couldn't work. And it, it was, but his approach in communicating that to me, even though I had similar feelings, was a very dismissive approach after spending a few weeks together. And then decided to ghost me, right? Which ghosting uh, is quite common. And it's interesting because it, my feelings were hurt, but okay. But then I found that I started to have this lingering obsession trying to solve, even though I wanted to not think about the situation anymore. It was almost as if the approach of how my perception of how I was uh, even though I knew it couldn't work, very confusing to me, you know, like, and is that abnormal? No, again, not at all. We are so programmed to want to be socially valued and accepted by people that we don't even like. I mean, you know, people, people want to be asked out by people that they wouldn't even go out with. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's even the people that we despise, we still would rather have them accept and like us than the people th that we like. And again, I just think that shows the importance of social acceptance to the well-being of human beings, just in general, that we're just desperate for it. And we've got our antennas up all the time trying to, to judge the social situation. We pick up that little cue of disinterest. You're having a conversation with a stranger in the grocery store line. And you're talking and you sort of look, you know, they look like they just sort of looked away for a second. You know, oh, geez, they, they think I'm boring. You know, and we're, we've got antennas up for this. And I just think it shows the importance yeah. to human well-being. Yeah, you know, like I, I recently am in the process for cast centers and myself looking at hiring a publicist. And 
I put out some emails to different PR firms and I even spoke to one publicist on the phone and no one's been dying to work with me, right? Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> now, many things happen and it could be timing, it could be that I haven't connected with the right one, it could be that the right one's coming around and it's not that I am so upset about it, but there's this feeling like, uh, oh, I'm not important enough or uh, I'm not good enough, or I'm not famous enough, or I'm not relevant enough. And it's interesting because I think for, for everyone, as we're trying to grow professionally, there's, there's this bit of a maze that you're bouncing back and forth through. And I suppose the key is to keep an optimistic mindset because you talk about exaggerated, we have an exaggerated sense of rejection. You've said this in some of your work. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's been helpful for me. And since we've spoken, I don't know, it was about four or five months ago. It's been really helpful for me to go, hold on, Mike, you're exaggerating your rejection, right? We certainly have a tendency, the research shows, to interpret sort of neutral feedback as if it's rejected. It's sort of like, if you're not completely for me, if I don't pick up, you're really into me and like me and want to listen to me and you want to talk to me, then I assume you must somehow kind of be against me, not in an antagonistic way. You just really are disinterested. People interpret objective neutrality as if it's rejecting from another person. And I don't know what to make of that exactly, but you're right. So that means we do exaggerate rejection. We feel more rejected than we actually objectively are. If we interpret just neutral reactions, oh yeah, I feel neutrally about you. I don't feel good. I don't feel bad. I'm just neutral. We take that as explicit rejection. Which, which I just find really interesting the same way you do. I mean, it made me realize that I'm often, often having emotional reactions to things that seem rejecting that probably aren't. And did you find for yourself that by doing this work, it's really helped you in your own life? Yes, because it allows you, once you've realized some of these things, to intentionally override that knee-jerk reaction that we all have. Uh, it, it's almost like, anger management applied to reactions to rejection. You know, anger management, we all get angry. And so in anger management classes, they teach you, well, how, and you could have sort of control that. Yes, you're irritated, but why don't, why are you reacting? And you sort of cool yourself down. This is a little bit like that. Yeah. Yes. You feel rejected. You feel hurt, feel dismissed, but, but let's take a closer look at that and see if it's, if it's appropriate. And even if it is, whether your reactions are too strong or not, uh, you know, so many of our reactions happen without us thinking about them. We're on automatic a lot of the time, the way other animals are. Animals, other animals don't sit around and ponder these kinds of things. They just react. We often react like that too. And part of our conscious thinking, I think, would evolve to allow us to override those automatic reactions when they're not in our best interest. Because the automatic reaction is not always the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So instead of just automatically having a knee-jerk reaction to everything that happens, human beings can say, well, wait a minute. Is this the right reaction? Is this best for me in the long run? Does this really make sense? And uh, yeah, other animals can't do that. They just react. And have you found that there's, and obviously everyone's different, but in terms of the pain of the feeling rejected, that there's a certain, um, certain category in which it's the most painful rejection. I'm not quite sure what the question is. Are some things more hurtful well, than others? Is yeah, that like the idea? If you're rejected, but if you're rejected with getting a raise at your job, is that uh, 
very different in terms of the amount of pain you experience as someone you love rejecting you. Well, we certainly have research showing that uh, the more motivated you are to receive accepting responses, the more you're going to be hurt if you don't. So how strong is the motivation? Yes, you want to get that raise, but is the raise as important as saving your relationship with somebody? Mm. Uh, so motivation and emotion are tightly tied to each other. And the strength of our emotions, every emotion is tied to the strength of the underlying motive that was thwarted that created the emotional reaction. So, okay. so how strongly do I want acceptance is a big part of it. And Mark, you know, I, I know you're, a lot of what you've looked into is like tribalism and, and how things have evolved and how we socialize and why certain things are important to us and not. What have you found in terms of, let's call it, even though everyone's different, kind of a healthy social life or social existence? Is there any work that you found for, for someone to go, okay, I need to lean more into this and less into that in order to feel more like I'm fulfilled? I have not done research on that, but there is research on what are the social lives like of the most happy, fulfilled people. And the interesting thing I has always gotten from reading those studies is that the requirements are more minimal than I think most people think. You know, how many friends do you really need, for example, to feel like you have enough friends? It really only takes the average person a few friendships. Where some people try to have you know dozens and dozens of friends and they feel like somehow their social world is not big enough unless they have a dozen friends most people don't have a dozen good friends and it doesn't take that many i mean it's i think it peaks between three and five good friends happiness and satisfaction with social life sort of peaks and more and more friends doesn't add to that so that's just one example uh having that one close relationship whether it's a romantic relationship or a close friendship where you really feel completely at ease with that person and can trust them in almost every dimension, that seems critical. So if you have just a few good friends and the one really highly supportive relationship, that's usually all people really need. Now, if you want to add other things onto that, sure, that's that's fine. I do think that a lot of people, over they look at their social life and they feel like it's paltry compared to other people's or compared to what they need, and it's not really. It's perfectly adequate. It's just that we we our standards are too high. Like there are for so many things. We look around the world and think everybody's doing better than us. You know, every see everybody on the internet and they're, yeah, they're doing great. Yeah, you don't have to be doing that well to be happy. <laughs> I know I, I read something you talked about and I don't have the, the exact words in front of me, but it was like a so this not a social atom, but it it basically is how much value you provide to another human being. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how you came to that? Well, as we think about people wanting to be accepted, what does that really mean? Or if you feel rejected, you can be rejected in a lot of ways. You can be kicked off of a team. It can be a romantic rejection. You can be not hired for a job. You can be ignored by your neighbors. What is the core of all acceptance and rejection experiences? And what the core is, and I think this is what you're talking about, is something I call relational value. What is my relational value to this other person? You know, we value our connections with other people to varying degrees. There are some people whose relationships with us are just so important. They're central to the quality of our lives. There's other people we like just fine. They're good friends. We hang out with them. We do things with them. But their relational value to us is not quite that high. And yes, we'd miss them if they moved away, but it's not a big deal. There's other people we enjoy interacting with, but they don't have a lot of relational value in the sense that if they disappeared tomorrow, we'd be over it in a day or two. So the point is, all of us differ in our relational value to other people. 
and in the relational value of the people we interact with. Rejection, that feeling of rejection occurs when you think that your relational value to another person is not as high as you would like it to be. That's the thing that creates the psychological experience of rejection. I want my value to you to be up at some particular level. And it's clear from how you're treating me that my value to you is not at that level, at least at, not at this very moment. So my feelings are hurt. I'm kind of concerned. I'm trying to figure out, is there anything I can do to increase my relational value? And, and the interesting thing about thinking about rejection in terms of relational value is it explains why we sometimes get our feelings hurt and feel rejected, even in the context of supportive relationships. Mm. So for example, imagine a romantic relationship. Yes, I know my romantic partner values me, loves me, we're gonna be together, there's no sign they're gonna leave. But on our anniversary, I say to my partner, hey, you know, why don't we go out for dinner? And he or she says, well, you know, I'd like to, but you know, I'm gonna wait till, I don't want to because there's a special about Wheel of Fortune on tonight. And I'm going, what? Oh my God, and it hurts my feelings and it makes me angry. You're going to watch Wheel of Fortune instead of go to dinner with me? Now, I know that you love me. I know we have a good relationship. Uh, but at that moment, my relational value is clearly not as high in your eyes as I wished it was, or you would decide to go to dinner rather than watching Wheel of Fortune. So when people feel rejected, I, I, I suggest that they ask themselves, how much do I want to be valued by this person and how valued do I feel at that moment? And you can feel better about rejection by changing either of those things. I can improve my relational value in your eyes, or I can tell myself, well, maybe I'm asking too much out of this. Maybe I want my neighbor to value our relationship too much and want to talk every time we're out in the backyard, but he kind of ignores me a lot. That hurts my feelings. Yeah, but maybe I shouldn't have that much relational value to my neighbor. And if I can sort of readjust that, I won't feel rejected. So you kind of started in the area of rejection and then walk me through where you've kind of gone through the journey of doing this. Well, it's most of it's been up and down through different peaks and valleys of rejection uh, because I started out just focusing on people's concerns with their images in other people's eyes. We're all concerned with what other people think about us. And, uh, you know, the question is why? Well, there's lots of reasons. We want to get that job or that date. But a lot of it is I want to be accepted. And then I got into different emotions, social anxiety. I'm nervous in front of groups because I'm concerned with what people think. I, uh, have my feelings hurt because I feel rejected. So many of our emotions are tied to how we think we're being viewed and treated by other me, people. And so on, on that point of social anxiety, I have a theory, it could be wrong, but a lot of people, they would say their greatest fear is getting them in the crowd and speaking and gosh, they don't want to do it. And, and earlier on, and, and I've only been public speaking for five years or so, and I can say that early on, I had a lot more anxiety than I do today. Right. However, there is something that happens when you do something enough times where you start to get better at something. So you build confidence. Sure. And, and that confidence can help with that story we tell ourselves that's less uh, desiring of other people to applaud and love us. And over time, my theory at least is when we do something enough times, we may not love it. But we may be able to subside that anxiety a bit that we are so concerned about. Do you find that social anxiety and speaking in front of groups improves through repetition or is it just a big fear? I, I think it, it generally improves through repetition because repetition does improve our skills at doing it. 
even if we're not a great orator and you know amazing people with our eloquence, we're still getting better at it. And so our concerns with making a complete fool out of ourselves does decrease. But my dissertation for my PhD was on social anxiety and how people's concerns with their images relate to how anxious they are. And the most anxious people are those who are most motivated to make a good impression on an audience and who have the least confidence that they're going to be able to make that impression. So if you lower their motivation to make a good impression a little bit, or you do things to increase their confidence, which would include repetition and skill building and a little bit of training, then the anxiety is going to subside. And with experience, people do get better. So, you know, new speakers are concerned. I, I could make a fool out of myself and look like a complete idiot at any time. You know, after you've been speaking for a few years, you realize, oh, yeah, I, I've botched a few, but most of the time this is going to turn out just okay. It's going to be perfectly fine. So, yes, uh, confidence is an important thing, but I just want to point out what the confidence is in with respect to. It's my confidence in doing a good job, but what, why do I want to good, do a good job? So these people will value me and like me and reward me and accept me as opposed to saying, I hope I never see this guy again because that was a horrible talk. So it all links into the acceptance rejection theme again. Okay, so so keep going on kind of your journey professionally. So sure. All right. So as we were studying all sorts of emotional reactions to concerns with acceptance or rejection, and that, that include um, shame and guilt, for example. Why do people experience shame and guilt? Well, they're about things usually that if other people found out about them, they, I, they, I, they're probably not going to think as highly of me. So it's shame and guilt are warning me, hey, don't do this thing. Or if you do it, don't let anybody else know. So we're studying uh, emotion. And along the way, I just happened to throw in a measure of people's self-esteem into some of these studies. And what I found is that the same events that created these negative emotions, like hurt feelings and social anxiety and embarrassment, also seem to lower people's self-esteem. And I started thinking about this because we normally think of self-esteem as something that's sort of inside the person. How positively do I evaluate myself? But it was clear that people's self-esteem was really more of a reflection of how, much, how well do I expect other people to evaluate me and how well do I expect them to accept me. And so this moved us into a line of research on what we call the sociometer model of self-esteem. And self-esteem seems to be something like a meter. Sociometer, if you spell it out, it looks like sociometer. Sociometer, it's like an internal meter or gauge of how well you feel like you're being accepted by other people. When you feel like you're being accepted, I feel good about this. Oh, I achieved it. This people seem to like me. I feel good about myself when I do things that lower my value, that make me feel like people are not as accepting. Then my self-esteem goes down, and I think, well, I'm not doing very well at this. I've got faults of various kinds, and so that that has created somewhat of a shift in how social psychologists think about self-esteem. That it's not just in your head. The old view of self-esteem is you should feel good about yourself no matter what other people think. This is, That doesn't make any sense. We don't want people to think they're good, at, good in their own heads if, in fact, they're despicable people. They have to get cues and information from somewhere to judge their own positive and negative characteristics. They're getting a lot of that feedback from other people's reactions. So self-esteem is inherently tied to how accepted people feel. Yeah. And that, that always, yeah, they, most people, when they first hear that, they do have that same reaction, sort of, hmm, I, I need to think about that. And if you begin to think about it, the pieces begin to fit. Uh, that doesn't mean you shouldn't feel good about yourself, even if other people hate you. There are situations where, in fact, everybody else is wrong and you should feel good. But it does say that it makes some sense that our own views of themselves will be affected by the social feedback that we get. That's one source you know, of information. Yeah, and I, I think the hmm, too, was thinking about 
acceptance in general, there's different degrees of accepting a person, right? There's accepting someone in your house or there's accepting someone with a handshake and there's accepting with a nod, you know, there's, there's all these varying degrees of which, and I suppose the degree in which we have this idea that people should accept us, uh, in some irrational way is where some people can create a lot of problems for themselves because it's just not rational. And you know, that it would be a disorganized unhealthy world that everyone initially just fully accepted each other. So. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's a good point. Real good and it, point. And it takes time um, to trust someone awesome. and to see how much you want to accept them into your life. And you can accept someone and still not invite someone to something. Right. So it's like, sure. but I think where what you're talking about and what, what resonates for, for me and with people that I work with is this black and white extreme nature around uh being accepted or rejected there's no gray it's the wheel of fortune night becomes he never loved me or wanted to do what I want. <laughs> yeah instead of it being you know he, he loves wheel of fortune and maybe we do both right like it can be yes that's right it's not there is a lot more nuance in social interactions and relationships uh than people's reactions reflect, which is what you're saying. I mean, none of us are completely accepted by anybody. Even our closest romantic love partner, Jess, I love you, but do you accept everything about me? Well, of course not, because I got some bad characteristics. In the same way, we we rarely completely reject another person. There are certain people in our lives who probably say, no, you're completely worthless. I don't want anything to do with you. But for most of us, it is this gray area. It's a combination of with our colleagues and our workers, co-workers and our friends and our neighbors. Yes. Yeah. I accept you enough, but I don't accept you entirely. And what that says to me is you have a certain amount of relational value to me, but it's not gigantic. So we can interact and enjoy each other and do things together and learn from each other. But yeah, it's not wholesale blind relational value, which would not be healthy, as you said. That's a good point. Yeah, and I, I've, lately I've had this idea, and I know this isn't on your reach. I'm just curious what you think, right? Okay. And because the word unconditional love gets thrown out a lot, right? A parent unconditionally loved their kid. If you love someone, it should be unconditional. And which basically, in a way, is no matter what you do, uh, I'm still going to love you, right? And I've just been debating it a lot just in my work around, is that something that is, I, I understand there's degrees of love and I understand that they get a parent's love towards the child. Um, but I've started to question the extreme sense of those words and, and wondering where it even came from. Like, is this a <laughs> word? And, and, and I for a moment was starting to feel like ashamed in a way because I was like, you, you know, like, shouldn't I believe in this thing called unconditional love? But I, I just, it's a little confusing. Okay, well, I've got two responses, neither of which are based on research. So I'm making this up right now, just like you are, and that's fine. <laughs> right. Well, one is, I think part of the problem is there's so many different definitions of love and they switch across relationships and you can love the same person in a variety of ways. So it's a vague term. And researchers are, who study relationships and love have wrestled with what, what is love exactly. So I, my interpretation of unconditional love would be, no matter what you do, I still wish the absolute best for you. I may not like you. I may not want to interact with you anymore. You have no relational value to me. But let's say my child commits a horrible crime. You know, 
dude, in one sense, I still have unconditional love. God, I, I wish the best for you as you go to prison. But, you know, it's not like I've got blinders on and I'm accepting all kinds of stuff about you that's unacceptable. So I think if you think of love in that context, and again, we use the word in a lot of different ways, but unconditional love means I unconditionally really do wish the best for you and hope things turn out as well as they ever possibly can. And that's one aspect of parents' love. Parents' love is a lot of different things. But one is I want the best for my kids. And so if you look at it that way, then I... then. I can, I can buy that I could unconditionally love somebody that I absolutely hated <laughs> in an odd sort of way. The other thing is it would be a horrible world in which we all unconditionally loved everybody because then there would be no penalties for horrible misbehaviors. I mean, our desire for acceptance and for, to some extent, love helps keep our behavior in line. So what kind of a world would we have if we just unconditionally just loved everybody with blinders no matter what they acted like? Our negative reactions to other people serve a very important social function. You can't be nice to all the people all the time because they really, honest to God, don't deserve it. <laughs> and that sounds cynical. And I, just like I think you thought what you said sounded cynical and you said you felt kind of ashamed of questioning unconditional love, but it's okay to have negative reactions to other people if those are well-founded. That's not just because you disagree with them or they, you know, you don't like what they do, but there are some people... We have to have mechanisms. Again, I like the evolutionary explanation. In that group back there five million years ago, we had to have mechanisms where we decided what to do with people who were harming the rest of the group. Mm. We, we couldn't just love them and accept them unconditionally. No matter what they did, we'd all be killed. So we'd have to ostracize them or send them away or kill them or something. So yeah, I, th I think negative reactions to other people's misbehaviors is perfectly okay. <laughs> and, but again, that's not a psychological conclusion. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's also just wisdom and years of experience reading and dabbling in different things. So for, for the listeners who, let's say, are going, uh-huh, I have a really hard time with uh, feeling rejected. I know that it's preventing me from growing professionally. I know it's preventing me from going on dating sites. I know, I know it. I know I, I, know I have this fear. It's horrible. I know I don't want to go and talk in front of people. It's just one degree of it, right? Like someone is... I can guarantee you someone listening right now is going. Of course. More than struggle with it. Of course. Yes. Everybody does. That's the first thing you're trying to realize. I don't know very many people who don't have that concern to some degree. And the people who don't are, you know, they're like sociopaths or something. If you really didn't, weren't concerned at all with what other people thought, there is really something wrong with you. <laughs> right. No, and, and those, there's a lot of those. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit confusing because even though the word these days a lot gets thrown around with narcissists and sometimes on one hand, people will say a narcissist is incredibly insecure and cares tremendously what other people think of them. And then you have another train of thought that says a narcissist has no care or empathy whatsoever and can manage people not liking them. So it's like this, it feels like the internet has made it this even bigger, confusing spectrum. Well, and psychology is added to that, just by the way. I mean, people who study narcissism back five or 10 years ago all pretty much agreed there are two varieties of narcissists. There's the grandiose narcissist, which is what we always thought about as the narcissist who was just too full of themselves and took advantage of other people and thought they could do no harm. But there's also the vulnerable narcissist, which is the other thing you're talking about is, yes, they think they're great and they ought to be treated well, but they have a lot of insecurities underneath that veneer of self-confidence. And these are two very different personality characteristics, but they all both do show some egotism and grandiosity associated with them. Just one of them is a very confident sort of thing. 
And the other is much more mealy and vulnerable and weak and erotic. Mm. So what does someone do? What would be a step someone could take to say, okay, I need to address this. Like, is it, and I know everyone's different. I know everyone has their own journey. Some people it's, it could be like a three-step process for other people to be going to therapy, but like, where, where does someone start? You know, I think you start with a particular relationship or situation. It's too overwhelming to think, you know, I need to be less concerned with what other people think of me in some grandiose way. That doesn't give me any strategy. But if I can think, well, you know, yes, I need to be concerned with what my boss thinks of me. That is important, but I'm too concerned. What can I do to start thinking about that differently and try to work through it with one relationship or one group at a time is so much more manageable than some kind of a overhaul of your personality to try to make you less concerned with acceptance and rejection. Again, that, that, that may not, that may not work, but that's a place to start. Sure. So let's say we have it. I get a lot of emails from like parents whose kids won't talk to them. A lot of them. Like huh. now I, I, I don't even respond because it's a much longer conversation and it's a bigger deep dive, <laughs> but, uh, someone goes, okay, that's the relationship I need to focus on then what do you suggest they do? Because their own thinking has got them in the same kind of predicament where they don't feel good. So outlet-wise, what do you think could be the next step? In a case like that, I don't know. Because if it's a parent with a child who's at home who never talks to the parent, I mean, that's, that's somewhat unusual. I mean, it's not rare, but it's unusual. And it does reflect some kind of a breakage in the trust between the two people and the nature of the relationship. Yeah, I, should go a little, I, think, I think you're right. I should go a little bit lighter. I get more the parent who, who their kid moved away and won't talk to them. Oh, that, okay. The truth is that that's not the majority. Let's talk about the, the, the more practical rejection. We know the situation. Um, I need to public speak. I would advance in my career, but I'm just terrified of being rejected. I have a woman, actually, a colleague of mine, she's coming out with a book and she told me she refuses. I said, you really should start running workshops and speaking. And she goes, no, my greatest fear is uh, speaking and uh, I don't, I don't want to do that. So she, now I guess I'm I'm, I'm talking out loud. So you hone in on the event, you go, here's, here's the person, place thing event that's causing the anxieties or fears. And then somebody I, I'm sure it's like a personal trainer. You can, you can work it out yourself or you can ask someone else to help you work it out, right? In a case like that, I think a coach, personal trainer kind of person, counselor, I mean, you don't have to think of it like I need psychotherapy. No, you're not psychologically disturbed at all. You're like the rest of us and you're struggling with this little area of life. But there are people out there who are trained to help people with exactly that problem, which is extremely right. common. And again, even for a person like you've just described, to focus on that particular context, not my general fear of public speaking, but this particular kind of public speaking, because once you begin to work on it and nail it down and polish it, and what would this workshop look like and take all of the uncertainties away, yeah, you'll still be anxious walking in there, but it's going to take a lot of the anxieties of the way, the more specific you get about how you're going to behave. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, and this is the last question kind of for you is in your years of doing this, it's really a cheaper question. One is what was kind of the biggest surprise that you found uh, in doing this work that really inspired you or, or made you feel like, gosh, I, I'm so glad I'm doing this. This is, this is just, <laughs> this is astounding. That'd be the first question. I'll wait for 
the answer and then I'll get the second. <laughs> That's a really great question. I think it would be that although when I started, I was personally interested in these topics. I knew that they were part of human behavior. They were inherently interesting, you know, the emotions we experience and why we do what we do. I think what surprised me is how deeply these things run and how pervasive they are and how much they affect every single social interaction we're in almost. We are never completely free of a concern with what other people think of us. Even if we're doing something completely different, we're buying something at the store. Still, you would be disturbed if you suddenly vomited on yourself and made a fool out of yourself in front of a bunch of other people. Uh, so this never goes away. It's a little voice sitting on your shoulder saying, be careful, make a reasonably good impression on other people. You don't have to astound them, but don't make a fool out of yourself. Don't look incompetent. Don't look immoral. Don't look unkind. Don't look unfriendly. And the pervasiveness and strength of this and how deeply it filters into every aspect of life, I think that's the biggest surprise to me. Because everywhere you turn, you see it. Mm. And uh, my next question is, what keeps you continually motivated, you know, after writing 12 books and doing over 200 scholarly articles? How do you stay motivated still to, to do this? Well, well, two things. One is just sort of curiosity. There's always new things coming up that you didn't think about. New research other people have done. You know, I, I just retired a couple of years ago, so I'm not doing it exactly as I have for 45 years. Uh, but, um, yeah, I'm still involved professionally because there's still things every single week where another light bulb goes off and there's another little nuance, another little twist I hadn't thought about. And the other thing, particularly at this stage of my career in life, is I'm now more motivated to sort of give it away to other people. I'm spending more time mentoring younger investigators and, you know, reviewing other people's work just to help them to do more of these kinds of interviews and that to help give it away. Because, you know, when you study the same thing for 40 years, you know a few things about it that I think the average person finds interesting. Most people haven't thought about, well, what is it that really hurts my feelings, for example? Interesting and potentially useful. The more we understand ourselves and where this stuff's coming from, I think the more we navigate social life because we understand ourselves better and other people better. And you don't use social media. Or you do? Very, very little. Very little. And your reason yes. for that is? That I have other sorts. I mean, I've had a blog over the years that's sort of fallen silent now, but it's still out there. But I have other venues of ways of getting the information out. I've done three courses for the teaching company, for example, which are podcast-like DVD. There are also DVDs of these things. Putting this information out there. Um, but as long as I'm sort of getting the information out to people who can use it here and there, that just the the blanketing of social media is just not something I had gotten into. Part of it has to do with my age and how far I was along in my career before social media took off in those ways. Because uh, new researchers, yes, they're places they work, colleges and universities want them to have their Twitter accounts and those sorts of things. Uh, but it just, I just, I just never fell into it. I'm not bad mouthing it at all. It's just not something I felt like I needed to do. I, Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think I'm uh, I'm just letting everyone know that they don't have an opportunity to follow you on social media, however you're... Yes, that's right. <laughs> has, written 12, has written 12 books. So if any of this is resonating with you, make sure to check out his books. Uh, I'm including some of his work in my next book, which I have not told you all yet what it's going to be about. And Mark, I appreciate you giving it away and then giving it you know, a way to me as I email you, it, it means a lot. I appreciate it. You accepted me, um, which feels really good. <laughs> someone 
and your uh, notoriety. And, um, you know, until next time, we'll keep it magical and we're always evolving. So thank you. Thank you.